0: Today, we'll delve into my favorite topic, AI and startups, with Brian Hale, Managing Director of the AI2 Incubator in Seattle. Hello, Brian.
1: Hey, Don. How are you?
0: Today's an interesting day to be recording, but we'll get on with the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, for about it, Brian. thanks for having me
0: on. Uh so Brian H, uh, maybe just start out and give us an exposition on what you're doing and how you're helping startups get going. On we'll do. Uh,
1: so I'm uh, on the incubator team at the Allen Institute for AI, or AI2, as as we refer to it. And AI2 itself, as an institute, is an independent AI research institute, founded, based in Seattle, founded by Paul Allen and Orne Etzioni about five years ago. We now have 150 plus. PhDs and researchers and engineers all pushing the boundaries of fundamental AI research for the common good. And the incubator, which I help run, is a sort of commercial offshoot of the Institute and we help launch AI first startups.
0: Maybe share with us a little bit with Paul Allen's vision in terms of how he's he's pretty good at um, crossing the boundaries between public interest and commercialization.
1: Sure. I can't speak for Paul, and I, I didn't know him, uh, and I joined AI2, unfortunately, after he had passed. But I can tell you a little bit about sort of uh, what I uh, understand his founding vision of AI2 to be, which I think is sort of emblematic of how he viewed sort of general endeavors like this. Uh, when Paul co-founded AI2 with Orin Etzioni, who's our CEO today, he made an observation in the AI labor market, that I think is now sort of a little bit more widely shared, which was essentially that if you looked at where a lot of the sort of PhD and PhD level researchers were working, they tended to either be in academic settings where they had a lot of freedom, but not a lot of resources, or they tended to be at large enterprises, typically large internet and large technology companies where they had a lot of resources, but not necessarily a lot of freedom to work on things that mattered to them. And AI too, jumps somewhere in the middle of that and gives folks resources to go pursue meaningful problems um, outside of narrower commercial interests. And um, Paul was in a position where he had the resources to make something like that happen. And he looked out into the future and saw that AI was going to potentially have a really big impact on society over the next several decades and felt that it was important to have a collection of talent and resources with that mission at that time. And so far, so good.
2: And in from the problem space, and this is not just now, not just at, at your current gig, but also in the past, You know, our pr- practitioners of AI and machine learning, we're always you know, looking for these new problems that are hard enough to solve that need ML, but not so hard, they're impossible. Have you ran into that uh, where there's some problems that are just too hard to be solved or just too simple uh, by that matter.
1: We tend to think that way. Absolutely. Um, I think for any early stage effort, whether it's a research uh, effort or a theorized problem to go out and solve as a researcher, or whether it's a new company to go be created by an entrepreneur, timing matters. And what we will often do in our context at the AIT incubator, when we're working with entrepreneurs is we will map the problems that they want to solve to whatever uh, we sort of collectively view would be the right, if there is, solution from uh, the AI world, you know, an AI or machine learning approach, and to think through, is this something that is now possible, or even better, is this something that will soon be possible? (laughs) Um, We most commonly see that today, I think, in the world of natural language processing, although there's many other areas that are sort of crossing these thresholds in AI, where is a model that can be built when properly trained on data, now just good enough? Has it moved from not quite good enough to good enough to actually perform the task at hand? And that sort of intersection, that moment in time, uh, and maybe, like I said, just before that moment in time, is probably the best time to go out and and start the company and pursue that problem in earnest.
0: And probably a good time to talk about um, the talent funnel your incubator in a very rich one in seattle absolutely so on that last point
1: we're we're homers (laughs) we're we're based in seattle we're big believers in seattle um and we think that seattle is a market that is really poised to take off because of the collection of talent that's around here um at the incubator specifically at ai2 um we tend to recruit talent from a number of different places of a number of different profiles. And our whole thesis in general is that for an AI first company to be successful, it helps to have uh, some combination of AI talent, folks who can provide edge with um, how a model is designed and trained. Um, They need to have industry expertise and someone who can help go to market. You need somebody who can go build products. Um, Seattle, it turns out is a pretty good town for that. Um, There's a lot of longstanding industries, lots of successful um, entrepreneurs and company builders um, and lots of AI and lots of cloud talent. The thing is about Seattle or really any secondary market beyond the Bay Area, those people won't naturally collide with each other. If you're a great entrepreneur and you've started several companies and you know how to scale up organizations and you have good nose for problems, you may not actually know the AI talent and vice versa.
2: And I don't know, it almost sounds like unicorn hunting sometimes, but in Seattle, I'm not surprised if you find people with all those aspects because the talent pool is so rich. In, um, In the talent pool that you have, what sort of diversity helps? I mean, I hear that diversity helps. And also, what sort of culture does your organization, is that a part of it? Do you try to harvest culture or that... You know i know these are separate startups sometimes but how do you do that
1: so the um you know surveys will tell you and and most people's own personal experiences will tell you that the, the largest source of sort of early failure for a startup is co-founder conflict right and this is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and frankly we need to be very good at for our model to work um, because as i was describing earlier you're basically taking people who may not have ever met each other (laughs) before um, starting to work together on a new company. And how do you get those teams to a place where they're actually comprised of the right people and they can work cohesively, not just for a few months as they're building out a prototype, but really five, 10 years down the road. And our somewhat uh, maybe unexpected belief on this, which I think has borne out in practice pretty well, is that if you actually don't know each other very well, it's sometimes easier to assess fit. Um, I've seen and you folks may have seen as well in a lot of sort of so-called organic startups, the way the founders come together is somewhat arbitrary and it has this um, a modest amount of understanding between each other just enough so that you don't ask hard questions. So a company that was started with co-founders who happen to have been in a college class together or happen to work on a project together in a large company, or their spouses were in book club together. I've seen that one. Um, They may know each other just well enough not to actually ask really hard, direct questions about fit. But somewhat counterintuitively, if you're meeting for the first time, it's very easy to ask questions like, hey, what kind of company do you wanna build? What what are you really good at? What are the things that annoy you? And start working together in an environment that is um, relatively, Low risk and low cost, and assess fit that way. Um, we've had pretty good success with that so far.
0: Brian H., I think you just explained Brian Ray and my failures. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: I um, love it. Still there, Don. <laughs>
0: well, well, I think uh, Ben Horowitz also brought up that um, not having enough tension amongst founders is a big problem. And that's probably straight to the point of Brian Ray and me as founder. yeah well hey, yeah we,
2: we get along t- too fabulously and our, our startup is never <laughs> never really took off I guess that's part of it but I, I can is there any times that you've ever told someone that their ideas you know far-fetched I mean if you just told them that like, you know this isn't doesn't you know either doesn't make sense or it's just
1: it's too soon or anything like that um, you don't like to ever say that right because startups are fueled by ambition. And startups are inherently uh, low likelihood events of success. Certainly the best ones are. So um, ultimately, I think you, you do have to occasionally say that, right? And one of the things that, that we do, given our focus and our expertise um, from the AI world, is try to very early on assess sort of technical validation. And you know, is this now possible? One of the things that we, we do see from time to time is... Uh, particularly on the, uh, in, the, in the founding CEO profile or folks that don't come from the, the AI world, like myself, frankly, you know, not too long ago, is you tend to um, imbue AI with sort of magical capabilities in your mind and you assume that anything is possible. Um, where in reality, I think today, you know, AI is still in sort of narrow use cases and still narrow capabilities. Um, and so oftentimes there's some grounding conversations we have pretty early on with folks that, um, want to go tackle ambitious, you know, sort of problem spaces, but they're sort of, uh, giving too much credit and imbuing AI with too many capabilities that may not yet exist. So, um, we have to have that conversation every so often, but you never want to dial back the level of ambition. I think it's always dangerous to do that.
0: Well, maybe delve into a case that's that's a huge win for AI2 is Xnor and their recent acquisition by Apple those founders seem like they could really benefit from your help for example since so just with the background where they came from
1: sure would would love to chat through this one and this is another one that um, I I can't claim too much personal involvement uh, Xnor was one of the very first companies Um, to to spin out of AI2. Um, It was a handful of founders, um, Ali and Muhammad in particular, who were uh, splitting time between being researchers at at AI2 and professors at the University of Washington and also um, helped create Exnor as a new startup, um, which is effectively the embodiment of our thesis, right? Which is that really great startups can exist at the intersection of research and entrepreneurship. The innovation that that they built, um, not to go too far into details, was really around computer vision and how to run computer vision models out on the edge in a very resource efficient way. So there was a um, somewhat well-known demo they did of a Raspberry Pi Zero that was solar powered, operating in a disconnected fashion, doing real-time object detection. So driving through the city streets of San Francisco and with a camera attached, being able to pick up. Street signs and cars and pedestrians and bicycles and newspaper stands um, in real time while driving, and um, this was a case of a fundamental technology breakthrough that was had a whole bunch of obvious commercial applications, but the the initial one may not have been um, inherently obvious. Um, this was a company that was you know incubated at AI2 and spun out of AI2 um, three years later. After some commercial success and a lot of success in building a wonderful team, um, it raised about $15 million and was recently acquired by Apple. Um, one of the six or so companies that have spun out of AI2 and certainly the biggest realized success so far. One we're very excited about.
2: And you expect that for every single one from now on, correct?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, is the, that is the bar. Um, I think the, the whole reason that we exist, again, is because the mission of the incubator Um, has a lot of overlap with the mission of AI2 overall, which is we want impact. Um, And a great way to realize that is with companies that can go on to be successful, um, not only have an impact on the world, but build large employee bases with great culture, um, longstanding businesses with successful customers. And then for me personally, um, companies that can, can spawn others over time, right? I think if you have a startup that achieves a certain level of scale and influence, it's going to have an impact for decades because you can encourage other team members to go on and start new companies. Um, that's what gets us all excited. Seven years from now, I want to be able to tell some, you know, I knew them when stories. I knew that founder when they didn't quite have the idea dialed in, and now they're, you know, ringing the bell at Nasdaq.
2: Don and I have a couple of those too. I would appreciate those. So I always ask this: Can I ask the precautionary question, uh, Don? Is it fair?
0: Well, I mean, it's your show;
2: <laughs> it's our show. <laughs> so you know, and we we touched on this a little bit before we hit record too, and we don't have to bring up that specific example. But uh, with science and AI and machine learning, is there any precautionary story, or do you have any fears of it? Um, is is it is there any risk in it going wrong?
1: Uh, we use the phrase, and, and you've probably heard this phrase, sort of payoff curve. In a lot of cases when we're working through uh, kind of market and use case selection with entrepreneurs and there's certain areas of the market where the payoff curve is is friendly uh to a new ai startup and the certain market where you need to be a little more careful and when i say payoff curve i'm essentially meaning what is the cost of something going wrong and what is the benefit of something going right and um the the healthcare world and the, certainly the biomedical world is one where the things can go horribly wrong um, if you don't have a lot of the proper safeguards in place. And so whenever you have sort of a a payoff curve with a significant downside and when there's human life involved or the consequences of misdiagnosis involved, you just need to be incredibly thoughtful about um, how you frame predictions, right? These are all probabilistic scenarios. And so how do you frame those predictions and what kinds of promises do you make around those predictions? And then how do you get the human in the loop? Right. So uh, one obvious example that, that many people are probably familiar with is all of these computer vision and imaging uh, use cases from the medical world. Right. Helping radiologists spot tumors on scans. Right. And what you'll oftentimes see successfully is, you know, bounding boxes around where those tumors are perceived to be by the computer vision model with some assessment of the probability that it thinks and the likelihood that it thinks that those actually are tumors. And then how do you artfully keep that human in the loop and allow them to bring their expertise to bear to arrive at the right solution? Um, that world, generally speaking, is not ready for you know level five automation, uh, if you were to borrow the, the framework from the autonomous car industry.
0: And when you touch on healthcare, we're really touching on a lot of sort of Cultural boundary issues between the traditional craft of healthcare and and software. I'd imagine those are kind of the intersections where you can really lend a lot of help to for nascent entrepreneurs.
1: Uh, sorry, Don. Do, do you mind kind of unpacking that a little bit?
0: Well, f- from my perceptions, what I've seen with like my Python group in the past, for example. Um, we have quite a few folks who are working at um, healthcare orgs like Fred Hutch or something like that, where you know, they're really introducing some new concepts to the mainline researchers, for example. And a lot of the folks in healthcare just aren't aware of the full gamut of possibilities with just fairly prosaic software, let alone AI, for example. And just seems for me that um, somebody coming from a traditional healthcare background, for example, with uh, a premise and some grounding in the software, um, AI2 and like organizations could really give them a boost. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. So um, I completely see that phenomenon. I see that opportunity in the market, really. I think um, one of the sort of scenarios or contexts in which I'm most excited about my day job is when we have occasion to pull people quite literally into a room um, from those various backgrounds and see and sort of lightly guide a very lively discussion around where are there some interesting kind of problem and solution pairings, right? So we'll do um, brainstorm sessions every so often, typically on some combination of a enabling technology and a problem space. And as I was alluding to earlier, oftentimes these people won't necessarily navigate to each other. Um, The fundamental AI researchers who know exactly what's happening on the cutting edge of natural language processing, probably aren't hanging out with the general counsels um, and the partners at law firms that have mountains of documents that they need to be able to categorize and understand that the, that no human could ever actually pour over, right? But when you get those people in the same room and sort of map what is an enabling technology that is maybe now just good enough to solve a problem that has been long standing in a particular industry, that's where amazing startups are created. Um, and it's also just an intellectually very very interesting um, conversation to be a fly on the wall for. That's the most fun thing that I do um, as part of my role at AI2.
2: And how does the implementation and for instance, the cloud providers and the technology interplay in that relationship too? I mean, don't you need all three? Uh,
1: that's that's a great point. Um, the line item for any AI first startup, and this goes for AI2 as well, one of the biggest line items, unfortunately, uh, on the operating statement is gonna be the cost of your cloud bill. Um, and you need to be very mindful about sort of how you wield it but sort of bringing in compute in the right form at the right time is incredibly important and it turns out um, most of the compute in the world has started to consolidate around a handful of companies luckily two of those are you know our neighbors uh, here in seattle uh, hugely important absolutely important
0: well even google in some sense as a neighbor since their uh, cloud HQ is just across the lake from you. That's true. We're
1: at our, our office in North Lake. If you go to up to our rooftop, and I encourage you folks to come over, particularly in the summer when there's you know seaplanes buzzing overhead, it's the best four days of the year. Um, we can look across the lake and see Amazonia, across Lake Union, um, around the bend in Fremont is where Google still has a number of employees. They're, of course, in, in South Lake Union as well. And then if you sort of go around the bend and you navigate underneath uh, the Montlake bridge and head out to the lake, you got Microsoft, you know, right there on the other side of Lake Washington, Um, some meaningful portion of the world's compute. Certainly the lines of code that help um, instantiate and manage the world's compute live in Seattle.
2: Yeah. And you're right in the heat of it. And I always see there's pros and cons with that. Don and I talk about this and the cultural impact of having, you know, someone who could jump ship so easily to something that's not a startup or to a different startup or just thrashing about aimlessly in the dark on occasion. Are you seeing any of that in Seattle yet? Like what used to happen in the Valley?
1: Oh, the sort of liquidity in the labor market where I might go somewhere for a tour of duty that's two years. And if it doesn't work out, kind of hop to the next best opportunity. Exactly. So uh, it's a new phenomenon in Seattle. It's something that's um, maybe in the last 10 or 15 years, we've started to see a lot more of. Historically, this was a company town as far as the technology industry was concerned, right? People would would move here from Microsoft and when they moved here, they more or less were making a 10, 15 year commitment to Microsoft because if that gig didn't work out, there wasn't many other places in town where they could ply their trade. You fast forward to today and at least if you're an engineer in this town, you've of course got Microsoft and now Amazon, and 150 or so significant engineering offices, largely from Bay Area companies, everybody's up here now, as well as a a growing startup ecosystem. We have that labor market liquidity, um, not quite to the level of the Bay Area. But what, what that means and what I get excited about and a lot of others get excited about for the startup ecosystem is yes, you may move here for Microsoft or Amazon. And if and when you get enticed by the startup world, you're, the level of risk, if you look at it in a certain way, is, is much lower, right? Because if that startup doesn't work out, you know, you'll have to go out and get another job, but you're going to have a lot of suitors, right? It will not take long to either go back to Microsoft or Amazon or pick any one of these other folks um, to go to. There was a remark made, I think by, by Oren, our, our CEO, a little while back when he was relaying the story of someone who'd had a startup that didn't pan out. Uh, and that person said, oh, you know, after my startup failed and I had to go out and find a new job, that was like the worst 15 minutes of my life. And it's, it's just about true. Right. And in our um, in our role at AI, too, we sort of try to uh, from a recruiting perspective kind of bird dog what's happening out in the market and see if there's pockets and groups of people who might be out on the market looking for new things. And if you're not quick, they're gone. It's a highly, highly liquid labor market right now. And that's a great thing for startups.
0: And for folks who are at one of the big companies and they take a risk at a startup, what I perceive is they'll get a better understanding of product because I see a lot of high-performing engineers who just really don't have any clue on product. And they really have an opportunity at that point, I think, to go back to one of the big companies and take a more senior role where they're possibly into the seven figures, right, for compensation.
1: Yeah, there's this, um, in our world, the, the other thing I would add to that is, is, of course, sort of the AI competency. The folks who are worth their weight in gold, or, or close to it, quite literally, is somebody who can, uh, who can build, and build a product and sort of have a sense for what the right thing might be to build based on the signal they're getting um from the market and customers and maybe their innate sense but also somebody who can apply some some ai along the way and it's sort of that that confluence of those three factors that you need to have on a team what we typically find when we're um when we're talking to to co-founders is it's not uncommon I think increasingly to have somebody who's got sort of two out of those three things very rarely do you find three um, But anybody out there that thinks they live at the intersection of those capabilities right can you build a little product do you have a sense of the right thing to build and can you um, can you sort of apply um, AI and sort of innovate a little bit on the AI piece? Um, we want to talk to you.' it's, it's, it's Brian H at allenai.org. <laughs> send me emails. Um, that's our sweet spot. Um, that's the fuel or certainly one of the big fuels for great companies.
2: Oh, thank you, Brian. For being... uh, I'm happy to Yeah. Thank you, Brian, for being on. This is this is fantastic and great content. And it sounds like you're right in the heat of it. So thank you for adding content to our our podcast and our listeners appreciate it too.
1: Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.